We repealed the ZDA law, the law on employment and economic development zone. We have a incredibly sophisticated, multi-layered, internationally sourced astroturfing extremist ideological campaign against us on a scale that I don't think I've ever observed as a 52-year-old man on any policy issue mm. anywhere in my lifetime. I I mean, right now on Friday, uh, November 10th, but there's going to be a, con- a conference of 50 different extremist organizations from around the world in English in Tegucigalpa to just attack us on all sorts of false statements oh, wow. and it's going to be on the internet the, the conference is about you guys it's about us okay. and it's all lies they even though we have the strongest property rights protections in the world literally and i say that as an eminent domain expert yeah. litigated eminent domain cases for institute for justice right en el combate frontal al modelo neoliberal que promueve la corrupción y el despojo como sangre que lo alimenta debemos Tentar las bases del proyecto del socialismo democrático. We have the strongest property rights protections in the world, yet they're going to accuse us of expropriation. Us. Because one of the things extremists like hold to on, do... Hold on, they're, they're going to accuse you guys. Of yes, yeah. yes. It, there's literally no truth to it at all. But they're going to do it anyway, because... You, Say you expropriated who? I don't know. They, they, they make things up. They claim that the land that we acquired that has been in private hands in all cases for decades somehow was expropriated by us. It's just not true. We are being accused of what they plan to do. Welcome to Border Wars, the first bilingual podcast that goes beyond the border. Welcome to the Border Wars Podcast. This is the number one podcast in all of the Americas. Be sure to subscribe by hitting the subscribe button. Also, uh, hit turn on your notifications so you'll be sure to be alerted of all our podcasts. And I say we're the number one podcast, obviously not because of me, but because of our guests. <laughs> and we have a very special guest with us today. We're still in Austin, Texas. And uh, Nick, uh, you're going to have to pronounce your last name because I have a bad last name. <laughs> so they'll call me Hugh Meyer, Humvee. Everything but Omide, which is very hard to say for for here, uh, you know, non-Spanish speaking audiences. But how do you pronounce your last name? Well, if you want to be really ethnic, yeah. you can say Dranius, but you can in call Han- me Dranius, Nick Dranius. Nick Dranius. Okay, but how do you say it in the proper uh, Greek? Pro- Greek pronunciation? Nicolas Dranius. Nicolas Dranius. Well, <laughs> I feel like I could do it with the Spanish kind of lingo, just Latin language. Um, so we're with Nick Dranius, and this is a very special podcast because. Uh, you know, one of the things we don't speak a lot about on the podcast, and, and but those that have followed the fest for a long time, you know this about us, that we have a classical liberal origin. You know, my, I myself uh, got brought up in uh, the world of think tanks through free market think tanks. I had working with the Atlas Economic Research Foundation, working with many of our free market partners throughout the world. Um, and, you know, we're in the national security space and most of what we do, obviously, on the podcast, we talk about foreign policy, national security issues. But it was a pleasure to meet Nick not too long ago. We actually met relatively recently. But it was a pleasure to meet Nick because he's kind of b- blending in those worlds itself. He's uh, comes up and we're gonna, you're going to tell us a little bit about how you came up through the world of free market think tanks here in the United States, but also is now working internationally on a very special initiative that we're going to talk about because this is like... This is the, potent, the, the initiative that Nick is working on has the potential 
to essentially solve a lot of the problems in one of the regions of the world that we care about, but also one of the regions of the world that's probably most important to the United States for national security reasons. And just because it's in our neighborhood, which is Latin America, uh, Nick has spent a lot of time in Honduras. Uh, so we'll talk about that. But Nick, let's begin a little bit by talking about yourself. Um, tell us how you got into this work. What brought you into free market think tanks? Uh, I know I'm sending you with the Goldwater Institute at some point. Uh, so give us a little bit about your journey. Well, I'm now in the private sector. Yeah. I'm the general counsel of a company called Prospera. Yeah. Uh, I got my, I've been practicing law for 26 years now. So you're a lawyer by trade. I am a lawyer by trade. And uh, I grew up in the wilds of Chicago's <laughs> legal scene. And uh, about nine years into my career, I decided uh, that I needed to do something more meaningful. So I ended up at the Institute for Justice, which is the premier constitutional yep. litigation firm, at least on the center right. And uh, after three years of that, uh, winning or settling every case we handled and, you know, defending sign hangers and wine. IJ sales. has an impressive record <laughs> yeah, in litigation. Was, yeah, we did great. My, my boss at the time, Lee McGrath, is still there doing a great job in Minneapolis. Uh, after three years, I went to Goldwater Institute yeah. down in, in Arizona mm-hmm. and uh, took on the chair of the constitutional policy side. And they're a state-based think tank, They're a right? state-based yeah. think tank. but They work man, on state policy in Arizona. Correct. But they uh, eventually, over the time I was there, it kind of expanded to a national presence. And, and really, uh, by 2012, I, I think it hit its high mark. It was really uh, a leader uh, nationally and in state-based yeah. And uh, it's policy. named after Barry Goldwater? It's named after Barry Goldwater. We had Barry Goldwater Jr. on our board. Yeah, okay. And there's never been a bigger character I've ever met. I mean, the okay. guy was amazing. Uh, and then after uh, six and a half years or so at Goldwater, I set my own, my own nonprofit up called Compact for America with okay. a, another gentleman named Chip Meller, whose father was on the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals. And what was that focused on? It, we tried to amend the Constitution. <laughs> okay, small <laughs> small goals. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we and we developed a unique way of doing it uh, called a compact approach, where we'd have okay. the states agree in advance to. Okay the amendment process and solve all the problems involved like a, in the bottom up approach. Exactly. Okay. And, uh, and we did that for a few years. we got five States on board. We passed legislation in I think about 25 legislatures and chambers. Um, and we ran out of money in 2017, more or less. So were you, uh, <laughs> were you always attracted to these very kind of ambitious projects that could like, you know, I call it the going to the moon projects because they actually are very uh, visionary, like kind of almost ahead of its time. I read Atlas Shrugged in eighth, in the summer of eighth grade. Okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and uh, I'm not a Randian currently. I've sort of, you know, evolved into yeah. more of a stoicist, Aristotelian, uh, maybe even Peter Jeff, uh, yeah. I mean, I, I, uh, a Petersonian, they say. Okay. But, uh, but, but bottom- you, will you be like considered like a maximum individualist or more of a, a, a minarchist, as they would say? I, I would say free enterprise maximalist. Okay. And, 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 and one of the things that I really believe in is the fiduciary role of government. In other yeah. words, there was a time when uh, governments in the original founders vision would be viewed as sort of a public trust in a literal sense. And every public official would be viewed as a fiduciary of the public's interests mm-hmm. in a literal sense and have the highest duty of loyalty and care and, uh, and prudence. And uh, I love that vision. It was a very dominant philosophy until the end of the 19th century. And I think that if we can return to that and we are mm-hmm. in Prospera, mm-hmm. it can solve a lot of our problems. Okay. So let, let's, let's, let's jump into it because, so you have this, uh, you, you basically cut your teeth in both the legal world, but also in the free market world, working with the IJ Goldwater, big prominent premium institutions that work on uh, free enterprise, but also work on policy. And then you move into international affairs, but maybe not on purpose. Maybe you look at, you're, you're looking at areas where you can find recipes and models for success in probably very challenging environments. 
So tell us about the birth of Prosper. And I'll tell you a little bit about how I got introduced to this because um, I started learning about the Free Cities Project, uh, I think was developed in Marroquin University in Guatemala. They had a forum in Antigua, I think it was called the Antigua Forum. And I'm dating maybe 10, 15 years ago. I can't remember the exact time frame. Uh, but the whole idea that was explained to me, and correct me if I'm wrong on this, was basically to try to figure if they could create a Hong Kong in the Western Hemisphere, uh, a, 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 a zone, a territory that uh, was also very tax-friendly, was customs-friendly. That's 100% right. Uh, okay, so so this is what I heard. But at the time that I heard about it, it was an idea. <laughs> it was, like, you know, and then the good ideas fairy, right? There a lot of good ideas, a lot of great ideas. And then, and I don't want to, you know, my libertarian friends that are watching, you know, libertarians have great ideas. <laughs> But when it comes from ideas to policy and more from ideas to policy to implementation, often those, those good ideas fairs get killed in the process. So t- take us through the journey. When did you join on and how did this uh, turn into actually a real project, a real initiative in Central America? Well, first of all, let me say I'm with you. Yeah. I'm tired of ideas. I want to see action. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> and uh, it, 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 so let me just emphasize, you can go to prospera.co, okay. prospera.co, and you can see what we're doing. We have a thousand acres in a special economic zone where the full stack of best free market policies are currently active in every, in virtually every dimension, except for national security. We're still stuck yeah, yeah, with under yeah. national security. Um, but here's the bottom line. I grew up in Chicago, in the city, yeah. proper. Uh, my dad was from the West Side. He knew a lot of bad guys. I saw a corrupt system. And one of the things that I initially thought is you could fix the corrupt system from within. Mm. Uh, that was what motivated me to go to the think tank world, to try to amend the Constitution, to do all these things I was doing uh, in the think tank world. And I ultimately came away from that realizing you can't fix a corrupt system from the inside. You have to create a way to sidestep it and to prove the alternative works. Because what happens in a corrupt system is people are demoralized, they lose hope, and therefore they lose the ability to change their circumstances. Everyone becomes a cynic. If everyone's a cynic, you can't achieve anything. So it's critical to human psychology to prove that the alternative can work. And to prove that it can work, you have to follow the models that work everywhere else. What has transformed the world in recent years? It's places like Hong Kong, Mm. Singapore, Dubai, Basically, you take a small jurisdiction, maybe in a terrible place or surrounded by terrible policy, and you demonstrate in short order that good policies work, that mm. there's no reason to be demoralized, that the, the hardware of humanity is good for the right software. You just have to put the right laws in place, the right policies in place, and be respectful to the local culture because you have to be careful about that. But if you put the right software in the human hardware, Time and time again, you get results like you see in Singapore, Hong Kong, and Dubai. But you had to figure out where to do that, right? Because, the, you know, as they say in real estate, location matters, right? So you had yes. to figure out the territory in which you're going to be able to have this special economic zone. So how did, uh, so effectively, Prospera is located where Roatan, the island, is uh, in the jurisdiction of the Republic of Honduras. How did this become? Because I, I'll be honest with you, when I first heard about this, I was like, you're going to create what and where? Uh, because Honduras, if nobody knows anything about Honduras, and Honduras has got a lot of great things about it. But for those of us that are in, well, I, I've been to Honduras quite a bit, but for those that have not been to Honduras, the one thing you might have heard from them is probably narco trafficking. <laughs> um, you know, they have presidents that are in prison now because of that. And, and in essence, what you see is essentially you see this area that's pretty much uh, considered to have very little or, or little lacks or maybe no rule of law. Uh, that's a very corrupt system, as you were mentioning. How did you guys get, why did you guys choose that and how did you guys get access to be able to do this in a place that's very difficult 
in in terms of uh, legal mechanisms? Well, well, first, credit where credit's due. Yeah. I'm the general counsel. I'm not the CEO. Yeah, so okay. the vision for the location began with the CEO. Okay. But more importantly, we were invited by Honduras because they had in, you know, indigenously created in their constitution authority for this sort of zone mm. where you could basically drop in all the best free market policies, <clears throat> best practices from around the world from a clean slate and start a, a new city. Mm. So this was, this was a Honduran idea. And, and the other thing that made, I think made Honduras attractive is it wasn't an, uh, an alien or artificial concept. Honduras in the 19th century was at the forefront of importing ideas of decentralized governance. They had one, one of the first countries to have autonomous municipalities in, in certain local policies. And some of their founders were even talking about importing and structuring sort of a federal uh, region in Central America that would be modeled after Swiss cantons. Okay. So the Honduran uh, authors of the underlying law that we relied upon took all of that into account. And so they, this is a, this comes from a organic outgrowth of ideas that have been endemic in Honduras for over a hundred years. So that's one of the things you have to look for is you got to make sure that what you're doing is has a root, a basis to take root in the place you start. You cannot drop something completely out of the context you're operating in into that context. And this goes to your time that you were working in, in your own initiative about trying to amend the constitution that you knew that it has to have kind of a ground uh, a ground level support. You can't yes. just impose it top down and come and say, we're going to all adapt this amendment. You have to have uh, roots that, that uh, are organic. And let me tell you something. Since then, I have so much seen that the right decision was made because the Honduran elite uh, that is interested in constitutional issues and governance issues is really robust. I mean, th- there are young and older scholars yep. that are really attentive to these principles. So the, in other words, so Honduras had the right intellectual infrastructure for an idea like this to succeed. Now, you're right. It has a lot of trouble. <laughs> and we'll get into that in a second. <laughs> it has a lot of trouble, but it's places that have nothing to lose that try new things. Uh, so I was going to say that because I was going to say, you know, when, when things are going, uh, at least uh, in terms of perception, relatively well, you're like, well, why am I going to disturb the peace here? You know, why am I going to try this very ambitious, uh, very innovative, but also very risky project uh, politically, right, for yes. the people that are governing the country, uh, when things are going relatively well, I have good prospects to get reelected, or my political party is getting uh, good traction in the populace. But when things are going really bad <laughs> uh, and things aren't working well, and the government is very dysfunctional, uh, you start to get people to think outside of the box. And and you're 100 percent right because you know my time at Atlas, I met a lot of very smart, what we would call intellectual entrepreneurs. In Honduras, people that are actually both—it's pretty unique. Yeah, I mean, it's academically it's a, it's a, sound, yeah, but also have very innovative ideas. And because they're in Honduras, they're outside the box thinkers by default. What's interesting in Honduras also is there's a large Chinese community that mm-hmm. is intermingled over time, and so they have from their family networks awareness of how special economic zones transform China. Is it Hong Kong? Just off the mm-hmm. well, they looked in Greater Mainland China. They looked Shanghai. to Hong Kong mm-hmm. as the example that then set their policies. So, bottom line is that there was a endemic culture and intellectual openness to this idea, and they knew it worked elsewhere, and they knew it could work in. In Honduras. And, and the one thing, just going back to why try new things. Actually, we tried to do prosperity zones. That's what we called them here. Mm-hmm. It wasn't prosperous, prosperity zones. Mm-hmm. Um, but we tried to do that in the United States through the think tank I was affiliated with. We tried in five states and we got our asses kicked. Forgive my language. Mm-hmm. I hope this is a no, this fa- is family friend. No, we got is- our asses kicked yeah. by established interests 
who already knew that the system's good for them. Yeah, yeah. And things weren't bad enough to overcome that power. Yeah. So, you might want to try again. <laughs> so yeah, yeah, yeah. Possibly, yeah. yeah. I mean, but I mean that so we learned that it is critical not only have yeah. the intellectual environment, the the fertile ground, but but a challenging environment because otherwise people get complacent. No, that's a great point. I think that's a great point. So break us down a little bit. Uh, break us down how Prosper works. So for everyone uh, that's watching, everyone that's listening, you know, it's not, a, it still operates under the governing laws of Honduras, the country. It has uh, mechanisms internally that allow it to have autonomy on how the administration works in terms of business, in terms of trade, in terms of just day-to-day uh, life. You guys are obviously working on the legal aspects in terms of criminality and things like that, because you still, I guess, fall under the legal criminal code of Honduras. If you murder somebody in this territory, you're going to have to respond to the national laws. But break down a little bit about how it actually mechanically works, Prospera. Well, let me first emphasize, yeah. this is a jobs and wealth creation machine. Yeah. Now, what makes it work is it's a political subdivision of the state of Honduras. It's, it's, look, it's a form of federalism. Just like it's this, like a, so it's like a state. It's like a state. Uh, it's like Hong Kong visa, you know, China in the good old days. Yeah, before uh, the pre-2017. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. It's like a Swiss canton. All yeah. of these ideas <clears throat> of decentralizing governance from the national level, not totally, mm. but a large measure of policymaking, at the local level were adopted in the Honduran constitution. And so the nice thing about Honduras is that it gave, it was brand new. So it gives those who later develop within that zone sort of a clean slate to then embed virtually all of the best policies that you can from the get-go. It's sort of like when you see in, in developing countries, they jump direct to cell phones instead of building yeah. out, you know, sort of landline situations. It, it, it gives you a technological boost to start from a, you know, tabula rasa and, and that's what we did. So, so the, the Honduran government created this, this constitutional and statutory authority. It created a clean slate in a political subdivision of the state. And they allowed everything but uh, national security and immigration and some degree of customs authorities. They allowed every other policy to be determined by the governing body in that zone. And they allowed foreign investors to come in and cause the development of the zone under the oversight of a national agency. And so everything we've done was basically a team of people from various think tanks, mostly in the United States, but also from the region and from uh, overseas, some European influences, good ones. And and basically we took all of the most plausible inside the Overton window, but on the outer edge of what can work politically and socially and culturally. And we took all the best ideas, packaged them up over a few years, spent a lot of money doing it, Mm -hmm. and, and then delivered it as the governance structure inside the zone. So the cool thing about the zone is we guarantee human rights at least Bill of Rights levels in the U.S. government. Okay. We uh, guarantee economic freedom at better than U.S. levels. Yeah. We guarantee property rights stronger than anywhere in the world. In fact, uh, if you try to use eminent domain, you're going to have to pay two times the fair market value and okay. pay for all relocation okay. and pay for all litigation. So there is no place in the world that is stronger for the protection of important human rights. How about on customs and, and, and borders and things like so, that? So this is, uh, so one of the things we did is we created this concept called e-residency. It was yeah. based off of what Estonia did that okay. helped them pull out of- Yeah, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. <laughs> the, that's a good point. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, so in our e-residency system, everyone accessing the zone has to go through investor grade KYC. Mm-hmm. So that means we do a biometric photo of their face. We take official ID. We do a international Interpol and other t- database type ba- background search. So, you know, t- basically this is a sandbox where entry 
is screening for the bad guys and creating accountability at the front end so that once folks are inside that are not criminal, you can do which, things which that are free. Which is what border security, immigration security is meant to do, right? It's meant to exactly. detect, deter uh, individuals that have malign intent uh, when they're coming into your territory. Uh, and to, but other, if you're not coming to do harm, welcome, come in, do, do what you want to do, work, uh, prosper. Uh, we, we learn from the best. I mean, the reality is the, the policies that you're arguing for yeah are among many other great policies that we've embedded in developing the zone. Okay. So how, now, now how has this been, oh, before I get into this, can you give us some numbers and metrics in terms of, you mentioned this is a job and wealth creation machine. Where was this at before? Where is it at today? Uh, give us a little bit of a sense of the measures of success. It was empty land, like, because by law, you can it, only- Roatown's kind of like, a, it's an island. It's an island, it's an but island. the area that we acquired, uh, now we have about- roughly 450 acres in close proximity. Then we've got a few hundred acres here and there. And we even had some acreage on the mainland. But uh, this area was, the initial area was undeveloped. 58 acres of raw land. No one lived there. And uh, and we gradually added on other pieces. Currently, we have over 1,500 e-residents. We have over 160 registered businesses. We have the first uh, robotics manufacturing plant. It's a smaller scale thing, but it's the only one in Honduras. Uh, We have the tallest uh, tower being built, a uh, 14-story mixed-use building where you can have all kinds of remote work. And and so that's being built. We acquired a defunct resort that was in litigation for 10, 15 years, and we're now in the process of booking it out. It's almost completely booked out through all of 2024. And that's being further developed. Uh, the, The thing is, when you create a free market environment, a rule of law environment in a place that's starved for it, the money comes, the entrepreneurs come, the, the folks that are trapped find their opportunity. How, how many businesses at 140? 160, 160 are 160? registered or created inside our zone right now. And are now. these, are, how many of these are, what countries are we talking about? What, what countries are coming here being attracted to? This is the fascinating thing. So the vast majority, I'd say two thirds of both e-residents and residents and uh, businesses are Honduran. Okay. So these are Honduran and, and what from, they're- From what they would call mainland Honduras. <laughs> from greater Honduras. Yeah. Uh, we call it greater Honduras. Yeah. Uh, and, and, they, and they came because it's easier to open a business. Okay. It's safer. The laws make more sense. It's English and Spanish. So they have better access to other sources of capital from the English speaking world. And uh, it's very exciting for them. So we have a, like entrepreneurs coming out of the woodworks. We've got a drone company. We've got That's FinTech. We've got- uh, incredible new. So what they can't do in other cities in Honduras because of regulations, red tape, corruption, and all the other problems that they have. They're like, okay, we found this opportunity to do something that we've been, you know, organically trying to do because they have an idea that they want to take to market. They're finding it in Prospera in this acreage inside Roatan, the island. Absolutely. I mean, the, the, the number of businesses that are being spawned by Hondurans that are otherwise trapped in a corrupt anti-rule of law environment is just amazing. And it would be even better if we didn't have a government trying to destroy us all the time. We're going to get into that because because <laughs> I was before we get into that, what I was going to ask was before I, I wanted to get clear of the metrics of success. And it sounds like you guys have been rel- relatively, not even relatively, you guys have been uh, enormously successful and it is relatively successful in terms of there hasn't really been this experiment in other parts of the region. Uh, We're the only true semi-autonomous zone with the level of policy control yeah. that we have anywhere in the Western Hemisphere. Yeah, yeah. And, and I believe there's three, right? There's three technically in Honduras. Currently, there are two other uh, Zetas, but yeah. those are purpose-built. So one is sort of a hydroponics farm. And the other one is sort of a, a residential area to serve a pharmaceutical manufacturing company. Okay, and Z is Zona de Desarrollo Especial? That's the Spanish, Spanish version. The okay. acronym is Z or, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, okay, so how have the Hondurans reacted to this? Oh, because, this is and, 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 and how have they, 
because obviously the ones that are building their businesses and bringing their residencies into uh, Prospera, uh, they're obviously favorable. But is the word of mouth spreading? And sometimes the word of mouth spreading isn't a good thing. <laughs> it might be the word, like, you know, with, with success comes challenge, you know? Uh, and Honduras is actually going through quite a lot of challenges. But first, let's talk a little bit about what is the positive reaction from Hondurans. Um, has there been any, any I would say, amplification of what you're doing to model it and create it in other places of the country? And then we'll get into the challenges, which I'm sure there's abundant. In it. It's still, uh, Honduras is still a very challenging country. Yeah. So international radicals immediately understood the implications of this kind of legal authority. You could create the East Berlin, West Berlin di dynamic immediately. And so the Zaydi system from its inception was under aggressive assault by international NGOs of all kinds, all radical types. Mm. And so uh, collectivists of all stripes. All stripes of collectivists. Re realize that this, is, this could actually they break their allow, back. They cannot allow this to succeed because in five to 10 years, we will have done with private capital what tens of billions of dollars of aid has never accomplished what no other bureaucracy. So I could see you guys being a threat to the central bank. I could see you guys being a, a threat to the mercantilist class of the private sector. I could see being a threat to this. Uh, yeah, I could see you guys <laughs> All having- All the same people that opposed us in our effort to do this in the United States exists there. This okay. is human nature. Yeah. So we, you know, having a free market zone with no monopolies threatens the monopolies. Having a free market zone where any any group of uh, workers can form a union threatens the unions mm -hmm. because unions are just a form of monopoly, right? So in, in having a zone where <clears throat> social welfare benefits are portable and controlled and owned by a employee threatens employers who want to lock them in through benefits. It threatens also the government, which wants to be seen as the political the benefactor of, of the working class. If, so all of these things that we built into our zone where you have greater worker autonomy, you have uh, no opportunity for monopoly, we create a lot of enemies. Mm -hmm. And, and, uh, but like I said, I think the, 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 these things all work. You know, you know, Singapore was poorer than Honduras in 1967. And in 40 years, it was richer than the United States per capita. And it did it because it adopted the right policies. You, have, you know, Human beings are the right hardware for the right software. The right software for human beings respects their individual rights and allows them to act freely within the rights of others. Yeah. And uh, in our system allows that. We, and, uh, the one thing I wanted to emphasize is the main source of our success is that we've adopted the common law as the base civil law and common law being generally U.S. common law. And this allows freedom of action so long as you don't injure others, which is a fundamental concept to entrepreneurialism. Mm -hmm. You know, it encourages people to take risks. You don't have to jump through a million hurdles by default. The second thing we did, which is critical, is that we have reciprocity for the regulations in traditional industries for over 30 countries. Break, so, that, break that down. Break that down. What does that mean? So, for example, let's say you, uh, you're a construction company in Guatemala. You can come to the zone and you can declare that you're going to operate inside our zone as if you're in Guatemala. Oh, and now you don't have to change the way you do business. So you don't have to create a whole new corporate structure. Exactly. You, don't you know what that sounds like to me? And then I, I got to learn more about it. But it sounds like it could actually work to actually root out a little bit of the money laundering. Because money laundering is based off of basically matching corporate structures that do misinvoicing, false invoicing, <laughs> and then they're able to create the the laundry mechanisms for narco trafficking. But if you're you're not allowing them to have to, or you're not obligating them to have to create basically a shadow company that mirrors their com parent company back home, then there's no need to do that. Well, we've adopted. Well, first of all, you've got the e-residency yeah. screening process, so we know who's coming in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and the second thing you have is uh, we have U.S. style entity registration, so you can register foreign entities and you can operate inside our zone very easily. It's fifty dollars. Yeah. Uh, you, you know, you just you do the e-residency thing and you're in. And so there is not the need for the co complicated corporate structures. The other thing is the way our tax system is set up. 
At the corporate level, we tax 10% of gross income. And gross income is almost everything that's revenue minus capital gains. So, but we don't have any like deductions or credits. There's no advantages to having complicated corporate structures. We're taxing essentially what is mostly revenue at a flat rate. And so a lot of these corporate structures that are complex are in part tax dodges. There's no tax dodge and, and it's the most transparent and simple form of taxation in the world. Well, what about, let's kind of get the elephant in the room. What about the drug trafficking it's, uh, it's an issue. Um, we, you know, we're very attentive to security. We have uh, excellent internal private security. Uh, we've been consulting with top folks inside and outside of the current uh, law enforcement community. We focus on looking to the United States for guidance. Yeah. Um, we do have a challenge in that, you know, we're in a, a complex environment, but here's the good news. The good news is we have a spotlight on us. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, so the, the last place that criminals really want to operate is in a spotlight. So for all the negative and positive attention we've gotten, it's, it's pretty much deterred any significant incursion by any criminal element. There's mm. been attempts. I can't get into the details, mm. but, uh, but by and large, we'd like the spotlight. Keep the spotlight on. Yeah, okay. So I mean, that makes sense because, because you guys are in the newspapers. You know, the drug traffickers are like, I don't want to be in the newspapers. So they just try to avoid uh, getting that unwanted attention. But let's go back to the challenges here because so Honduras had a flip. Uh, and then, let's be honest, I mean, Honduras never really had a kind of a free market governing system. They didn't, they had people that were maybe sympathetic to the ideas that are right of center, maybe conservative presidents. But as I mentioned before, they've had a very mercantilist uh, private sector. Uh, corruption has been very endemic. Uh, narco trafficking is abundant. And we have presidents of Honduras that are in prison, right? So here's the challenge here, because that political situation has now brought in a new government that is much more radical than anything we've seen in Honduras in the past. Well, we, we've had corruption in Honduras, we've had bad governance, but we've never seen an ideological government that's willing to essentially change fundamentally the legal structure of the country. We have that now with President Ziomar Castro and the Libra Party. And I knew about them as much as probably many of you did, or you guys did, or many of our watchers and listeners, because uh, they were involved in some of the early issues related to the caravans and the migrants that we were dealing with on the U.S. southern border, they were involved in a lot of the augmenting and helping of uh, Hugo Chavez back in the day, Nicolas Maduro today, of the Venezuelan and the Cuban communist network that was spreading throughout Latin America. And then I can even go back, my first experience in Honduras uh, it was back in 2009, which is a very critical year in Honduras <laughs> because it was the year that the former president, Manuel Melzalaya, tried to basically uh, upend the constitution uh, and uh, basically throughout the rule of law to be able to uh, project himself into power. Uh, that was stopped actually by the Honduran people uh, with a lot of pushback from many different corners. But the Honduran people pretty much understand that that was a violation of the constitution and they enforced their constitution to be able to make sure that that change didn't happen. Uh, they then maybe thought that they were out of the woodwork, but it, apparently they weren't because uh, people that don't know, Ziomar, President Ziomar Castro of Honduras is the wife of Manuel Melzalaya. So you got kind of like this. So that to, to me seems like a big challenge for you guys. Now break us down. How, how challenging is this for, for Prospera? Incentives are everything. Yeah. So you can have somebody that you know is not a good person and wants bad policies, but if you can create the right incentives, mm. good behavior can follow from bad people. Yeah. Um, so yes, it's an incredible challenge having to deal with, uh, with the Castro administration, which is, self-described as an avowed socialist regime, self-described following in the footsteps of Venezuela and Cuba, and has terminated relations with Taiwan, has weekly meetings with the Chinese government, 
uh, has Cuban. She, she traveled to, I think the president traveled, the president of Honduras traveled to Beijing not, not too long ago, a few months ago. Yeah, right? And then the, almost their entire congressional delegation traveled to Moscow and St. Petersburg yeah. <laughs> recently in October. Um, so you're dealing with an environment where the, uh, let's just say the government is quite contrary to American interests, to freedom oriented policy. That said, they are embedded in a system of incentives. They are a party state to CAFTA, mm. which is a free trade uh, treaty that guarantees for U.S. investors and other investors of party states fair and equitable treatment, protection from expropriation. It creates a arbitration system where you can recover very significant awards. And then in a country that's so dependent on remittances and aid and international financial support, those awards that you can win and are won in uh, investor disputes uh, can be very effective to, let's just say, create the right incentives for good behavior by threatening sources of, of revenue and, and allowing for recovery. So we have very carefully used our rights as U.S. investors under CAFTA, and we have a pending uh, case uh, led by White & Case LLP, the best international arbitration firm in the world, and uh, it's a been, case with against the Honduran government. Against the Honduran government in what's called ICSID, which is the official arbitral body for these types of disputes. And our allegations are for up to ten point seven billion dollars if mm. if they expropriate us. Now they haven't okay. fully expropriated no. us. They make a lot of threats. And are they expropriating you know, U.S. companies? They are. They have. Uh, I would argue there's a concept called indirect expropriation, which isn't quite as dramatic, but just as effective. They have threatened Cargill. They have threatened Haynes. They have. Uh, we're, there's a long list of both U.S. and international businesses that have been basically threatened with shutdown or confiscatory levels of, ca of taxation, which has led to shutdowns of businesses. The losses of jobs over the past year and a half are stunning. So it's basically they're, they're, they're weakening their business uh, without actually officially kicking them out. They are destroying sources of foreign investment that are not Chinese and Russian. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yes, yes. Uh, I could see that. So, so that's interesting in the sense that it seems that they're not going the full expropriation route because that could open up a whole kind of legal challenge and obstacles that may actually backfire on their effort. But they're finding a mechanism, I think you call it indirect expropriation. Indir indirect expropriation. Where you're basically, allow, you're basically ostracizing these companies, making it very difficult for them to operate. Uh, and almost like a battle of attrition just to they quit and give up and leave on their own accord. Right. Let me give you an example for us. So they've taken away our customs authorities. They're supposed to have free trade customs authorities. They took them away. They literally, we paid for them. We have a contract for them. They took their people away. So as a mechanical fact, we can't plug into the systems needed to import or export. We're forced to use their external systems, which are more expensive, timely, and subject to corruption. Corrupt, yeah. um, and so then that's one thing they did. The other thing they did is they took away our access to their external commercial registries. So when we're trying to attract nearshoring and we have companies trying to relocate from China, yeah, hundreds yeah. of millions of dollars want to relocate I, from I China. I want to talk about that in a second, but <laughs> yeah. keep going. Keep yeah. going. Yeah. But they, when we tell them, well, <clears throat> you can come here, you can register in our registries, but if you do anything outside of our zone, which is a thousand acres was big, but it's small compared to the country. If you do anything outside of our zone, they're not going to let you register your commercial activity. So that's a very, it's a huge deterrent. Uh, it creates legal instability, creates regulatory uncertainty. That is what they have excelled in. And it has, like we have, I would estimate right now, $250 million in nearshoring opportunities that are interested in our zone and our zone alone because of the reciprocity in our regulatory system. Wow. They can move in seamlessly, but they're being, they're sitting on the sidelines because they just don't know what well, the Honduran government's going to do. That's very interesting because I mean, obviously this has been a discussion within uh, foreign policy for a while, but honestly, really after the pandemic and especially after the war in Ukraine, 
the idea of nearshoring or what they now colloquially call friend shoring has become a very big issue because taking companies out of China, taking manufacturing plants out of Russia and China and bringing them over to more friendly countries that are pretty away from potential war we zones. We are purpose built for that. Yeah, I could see that. I could see that you guys are, are a territory that can actually build the conditions so that manufacturing can take place at a very robust level. Because of the regulatory reciprocity, mm-hmm. we recognize the regulations of 30 countries in all traditional regulated industries. So you can seamlessly relocate even if you want to later change what regulatory system you want to operate under, you can seamlessly relocate. This is an incredible thing. You could take your Chinese operation, move it seamlessly into our zone. So, so the question then naturally for me would be, this seems like something the United States would get behind. This seems like something the United <laughs> States would want to, you know, because, you know, in the just name of essence of national security and foreign policy of helping U.S. companies find opportunities to safeguard their businesses. Are you seeing this? Are you seeing the United States... Uh, try to help you guys out, build conditions, build bridges so that the nearshoring opportunities are uh, capitalized on? I'm going to try to be as fair as I can. Yeah. The past week has been a remarkable show of support. And just, just for, you know, we're going to probably put this out yeah. a little bit later. So we're in, in uh, mid-November. Mid-November. Yeah. So, uh, so I, think, I think the U.S. government is waking up currently and in the past week to the potential that, that our business model offers yeah. as a means of projecting soft U.S. power. Um, up until then, it's been a hard to assess a relationship. Yeah. Yeah. So you, so you get maybe like a mixed response, you know, maybe some very positive comments uh, privately, but no real action. Sometimes extremely positive and seemingly official <laughs> comments that are later yanked away. Mm. Uh, and then, you know, so it's, it's been a very complex relationship. Here's the good news. We have 28 congressmen of both chambers, both parties, with unusual bedfellows, Chip Roy on one hand, Debbie Wasserman Schultz on the other, mm. that have expressed support for what we're doing in Honduras and have expressed concern about any effort to expropriate what we're doing. So over time, we are convincing and persuading everyone that this is a great idea. And, uh, and so far, we think people of goodwill are seeing the value of it. Now, it could just be that what we're doing is so innovative and we're coming out of nowhere. We're a bunch of entrepreneurs. We're a startup. I mean, we're a startup government, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. right? It, it, just, it could be that we were just looked at as weird or potentially, you know, un, you know maybe not legitimate. And that just took, it just took us a while for our, for our reputation to burnish itself, right? And, and it may be a natural function of that, but, uh, but it has been challenging. No, not, but I would say, no, 100% I could see that. I could see you guys are basically now, start, because it takes a while to show success too. True. It takes a while to show the numbers, to show the metrics. And you guys have it now. You're showing it. You've been around for 10, 10 years. Uh, well, we, we broke ground only in uh, January, 2020. We, oh, we've wow. Had, we've okay. had, yeah, we've had the- uh, The conceptual had, start took it, a long time. Yeah, the, the law was in place since 2013. Uh-huh. We didn't get the 50-year concession until December, 2017. We spent the first year and a half developing the governance systems yeah. and acquiring a few pieces of land. Uh, but the real money from investors didn't come and the breaking ground didn't start until 2020. Okay. And, and wow. And then the pandemic in the middle of the pandemic, yeah, yeah. we thought we were going to be, uh, uh, you know, the savior of the area. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And then they had a uh, quarantine. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so no, that's okay. So you really, you guys are really new then. Um, because the concept was done, the, the building, the legal frameworks that were all developed, but you haven't been implemented in, you know, basically running day-to-day operations uh, for only about a few years now. Yep. Uh, so I could see that. I could see it's going to take a little while to be able to build the reputation, get the metrics of the sex and everything. 
and now you're facing. When, when did the Zelaya government? When did the Castro? I'm sorry, the Castro government come in? They got elected. They they well, they got inaugurated in January 2022. 20, oh, so this is, yeah, it's a year, so year and a half, year and a half. Yeah. Yep. So this is this is very hard, <laughs> very hard year and a half. Hey, but I got good news. What's that? Well, the good news is they although they repealed our underlying statutory authority yeah. and they tried to repeal our constitutional authority, it appears based on what I'm hearing from all the legal experts in Honduras that they blew the date to perfect their constitutional repeal. It was supposed right. to have been done by October 31st. It's, it wasn't done. And the prevailing view in Honduras right now is it's now too late. So yeah. there is a chance to unwind the effort to destroy us by that yeah, administration. No, no, for sure, for sure. I mean, like, you know, they can't, you know, amend the constitution to take away what you guys were uh, granted with, you know, the 50-year concession, right? Oh, that, yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, so one of the things Honduras is awesome about is they actually have a tradition of protecting businesses, at least in legal doctrine, even stronger in some ways than the United States. And the problem is the quality of that protection depends on the quality of your judiciary. Okay. <laughs> but on paper and in theory, Honduras is a very pro-free market, pro-property place. And honestly, Central America in general, I mean, yeah. Guatemala has a, a very similar uh, conditions uh, for, for doing it if you had the political will and the political leadership to do it. Um, but what I was going to say was, so what I see is you guys are, uh, a startup success story, an entrepreneur success story beyond just building business, but be beyond the building a territory that can be friendly to business so that they can provide alternatives that oftentimes the governments don't uh, because governments aren't meant to be uh, building businesses. You know, governments are just supposed to be the arbitrator of a f f free, fair, free and fair system. But what I was going to say was, I think where you guys could take this to the next level. And I think it's a lot of the reason why I, I'm, I really was excited to have this conversation was because right now in the state of world affairs, we're dealing with potential wars. We're dealing with, we have wars. We have wars going on in Israel. We have wars going on in Ukraine. We have potential wars going on all over the place, proxy conflicts. And what it seems to be where we're headed into the future is we have to find national security solutions to conflict, uh, global conflicts that are uh, erupting throughout the world. And what I mean by national security solutions is we have to find territories and sovereignty issues that allow production and uh, entrepreneurship to take place, even in the worst conditions, Absolutely. right? Um, and so in that sense, I think what, uh, you know, this next evolution here, and you said, you know, we might've crossed one obstacle in terms of they missed the deadline to uh, amend their constitution. But nonetheless, I think if you're going to probably face trial by fire in these next months, years, just because of what's going on in Latin America and more specifically Honduras, but that might make you guys stronger. Oh, the, uh, the that, trial by fire hasn't ended. Yeah, no, that's not my, my point. Is you, this? I don't. You know, you guys, you're, you're in it. You're in it. You're in it. You're going to go back to Honduras. You're going to be facing all these obstacles. But if this works, it will be so bulletproof that I think it will be a solution that many countries, many territories, many uh, leaders that are facing these big obstacles. And you know, because let's think about this, right? If Ukraine loses its territory, right? If they lose this war against Russia, where are they going to go? How are their businessmen going to make a living? How are they going to be able to survive uh, uh, to provide food for their families? Same goes for Israel. Same goes for Taiwan. Same goes for the Nagorno-Karabakh conflict. Same goes for the Sahel. Same goes for Guyana, right, in the hemisphere next to Venezuela. Where are they going to go? How are they going to survive? And we could, you know, send aircraft carriers everywhere and try to gauge in all these wars, but that's not going to work. We know that's not going to work. Um, and the question is we're going to have to get really innovative on how to solve these and provide opportunities by recreating territories uh, that have a jurisdiction that shows that you can prosper. So my point to that is to say, let's, let me let me ask you the question this way. How do you see the potential of Prospera if you're able to survive this 
um, trial by fire that's going on currently with the Honduran government. I think what we have is a, a tool of mass alignment for the world to the right values, to the values that America used to be understood as standing for right here, paid for not by taxpayers, but by private investment with their own skin in the game, which makes better decisions about how you deploy that capital than if you don't have skin in the game. Mm. So what I mean by that is every time we drop in the Prospera business model, where we take the best ideas and policy and we transform a place in five to 10 years visibly for the better, we are deploying through soft power, the values that animate America that we want the world to perceive in America in U.S. investment. And, uh, you know, our vision as a company, you know, we, we are grateful to Honduras and the founders in Honduras of the Zeta concept because they had the foresight to know what their country needed to leapfrog to where they should be. But our vision is in every country that is willing to partner with us to do the same thing, to replicate it 10, 20, 30 times. And by you know the nature of the thing, it's going to be the countries that need it the most, the countries that are least stable, the least wealthy. Or they're and, losing their territory. Or, exactly. Yeah. Or, they lost their, or they need to reboot something with a phenomenal working environment for business and investment. We can be that private sector partner in a lot of ways, similar to say SpaceX is to NASA. Okay, and uh, and that's the way to think of what we're doing. And I, and honestly, we can beat the pants off of anybody trying to do a centralized government funded operation. Because again, what's critical here is we have very smart VCs behind us, risking their own capital, and that. And we also <laughs> we all have equity, and we're all in it, yeah. thinking about the consequences, the long term success in a way that even the best intentioned bureaucrat can't. Mm. Yeah. No, I see that. I see that. So, are, are you having conversations? with other countries, with other political leaders, with other uh, jurisdictions? Don't you have to get yes. the details? It, well, the short answer. <laughs> yes. Yes. Uh, it, 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 you know, in a lot of ways, it's kind of the usual, usual suspects. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but there's interests in, all over the world. And I, I, you know, one thing that I've seen that's very interesting is, is an uptick in innovative leadership in countries that need it. It seems like the right man or woman is rising to the occasion in a lot of the places that they need to rise. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, uh, and those folks are reaching out to us. Okay, good. Now, now let's bring this back a little bit down to the local level in Honduras. Um, is, in the country right now, is there a resistance movement swelling uh, that's backing up perhaps the government's efforts <laughs> to want to um, clamp down on, on your concessions or on your rights that you've acquired or you've uh, gained in, uh, in, in, in the, in the Zere? Uh, is there an agitation network, a disinformation network? Because my experience and my understanding of warfare and is that, that that's the new ways of war, right? You don't just use an army or a navy. You, you basically create disinformation networks. You create proxy networks. You create uh, agitators or what they used to call in the Cold War, agiprop. And you basically swell them and swarm them to the point that they collapse. Are you seeing this happening? We have a incredibly sophisticated, multi-layered, internationally sourced astroturfing extremist ideological campaign against us on a scale that I don't think I've ever observed as a 52 year old man on any policy issue mm. anywhere in my lifetime. And it, I, I mean, right now on Friday, uh, November 10th, if I'm right, maybe November 9th, but there's going to be a, a conference of 50 different extremist organizations from around the world in English, in Tegucigalpa, to just 
attack us on all sorts of false statements. Oh, wow. And it's going to be on the internet. The conference is about you guys. It's about us. Okay. And it's all lies. They, even though we have the strongest property rights protections in the world, literally. And I say that as an eminent domain expert, yeah. litigated eminent domain cases for Institute for Justice, yeah. right? We have the strongest property rights protections in the world, yet they're going to accuse us of expropriation. Us. Because one of the things extremists well, like hold to on, do- Hold on, They're going to accuse you guys. Yes. Yeah. Yes. It, there's literally no truth to it at all. But they're going to do it anyway. Because you, then you expropriated who? I don't know. They, they, they make things up. They claim that the land that we acquired that has been in private hands in all cases for decades somehow was expropriated by us. It's just not true. Mm. So they, they, we are being accused of what they plan to do. That's it. I was, I was, my mind was going there and you said it, which is very common with the autocrats of the world who basically telegraph what they're going to do by accusing you of doing what they're actually planning exactly. to do to you. So, so you, the answer to your question is yes, but I want to, I want to condition that yeah. caveat that it's not natural in Honduras. We just did a recent poll. Two thirds of Hondurans don't even know we exist. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> the one third that knows that we exist, the support for us is four to one greater than the opposition. Yeah. Uh, the, so yeah, this isn't a ground up uh, organic, this is an international resistance movement because they see ideologically that if this works, it's going to take power away from all these folks that are basically surviving on having uh, crony access to capital and power. East Berlin, West Berlin. Yeah, yeah. They can't let this business model succeed because so much rides on the endless gravy train of aid and you know, NGOs and all these things that have never done anything, but they spend money and they get lots of money, but they never actually achieve anything. If our business model delivers what we are confident in our investors, we've raised $110 million from sophisticated investors so far, yeah. right? Our investors and we are confident that in five to 10 years, you're going to visibly see a transformation. You can already see it now when we're under fire. We have, ro we have robots in Honduras. Yeah. You know, I mean, we, we have incredible new businesses being created in Honduras by Hondurans. We have young Hondurans coming out of college who otherwise would be coming across our border who are deploying their skills to their full potential right but, now. But with the avalanche that you guys see forming, which is not organic, as we say, this is not Hondurans resisting. It's uh, not. It, it, polling data, let me emphasize this. Yeah. Polling data shows that 0.95% to 3.1% of the Honduran electorate is opposed to what we're doing. That's nothing. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and But so that's my point. My point is that saying that this isn't an organic Honduran resistance to Prospera. This is an international effort by agi professional agitation propaganda networks in combined with autocratic probably states, Venezuela's, Cuba's of the world, that are deciding that they're going to avalanche on you guys. What do you need? What support do you guys need? Like, let's make a call to action here. You know, let's, no, let's, let's do this. Let's make a call to action here because what support do you guys need to make sure that this avalanche doesn't succeed. And, you know, let's be honest, in Latin, in Latin America, there, there hasn't been other prosperous, but there has been is free market success stories. Chile is probably at the top of the list, right? That's a country that they didn't do exactly what you guys are doing, but they basically realigned their uh, legal framework to support free market policies in the 1980s that took their country from being basically in the haven of socialism to now becoming one of the most wealthiest countries in uh, the history of Latin America. But that's also an assault, right? They have an, also a similar president today that's trying to redo, probably not accomplishing everything that they would want to accomplish, but nonetheless, they're under threat. So my point to you saying is what I see here, and I don't know, before I'll tell you what I see, what do you guys need? What would you guys need to overcome this avalanche of what's a good idea that has the potential, extremely potential to not just work in Honduras, but throughout the world? Go to our website, prosper.co. Yeah. Join what we call the Builders Network. 
This is not limited to U.S. citizens. This is not limited to Hondurans. This is everyone all around the world who views their life as that of building, not you know building buildings, but building, creating, creators. Join our Builders Network. Get plugged in to this mission and engage. I hate to say it. It sounds silly and stupid, but engage on social media. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Follow us at uh, Prospera Global, at Prospera Global uh, we'll, and on Twitter. We'll put all the links uh, to Prospera uh, so that they can follow you on social media, look at the website, learn about the project on the show description. It'll all be in the notes. But well, you know where I was going to? This is where yes. I was going to with that. You know, there was there was a, a famous admiral that was actually co- commander of Southern Command, the, the Department of Defense Combatant Command that has the area responsibility of Latin America. But he was also the Supreme Allied Commander of NATO. So, you know, he had the great title. And he said something that I think to this day stands in, in, in the area that we work in in national security. He said that to beat a network, you need to create a network. To defeat a network, exactly. you need to create a network. And, and I think that the real a recipe to success for you guys beyond what you guys are doing on the ground in Prospera, in Roatan, in Honduras, is actually building an international network uh, to be able to get not just the communications and you know, the awareness of what's going on, but to actually build a coalition of people that are willing to defend you. This is what the failure has been. And I, you know, for those that watch me, you guys know that I say this at nauseum, but this has been the failure of the right of center. And not to even get part of it. It's more like just the people that believe in free market and uh, in, in individual rights, human rights, uh, are the values of a free uh, and secure society, as our name suggests. Um, <laughs> has been that we've all worked in silos. Every country works on their own problem. They don't actually worry about their neighbor's problem. And you can't have a free market success story in a neighborhood of bad guys. Chile now learned that lesson. You can't be the only economic success story where Peru, Bolivia, Argentina are all collapsing right before your eyes. America can't be great again when Mexico is going through cartels and everything else. And uh, Roatan, Prospera, will not be able to achieve his success if the whole entire neighborhood's burning down. Absolutely. And that's why be a builder. Join the Builders yeah. Network. And most importantly, come to Prosper. There are direct flights from all the major cities in the Southwest. Uh, you got Houston and Dallas and Miami. Come to Roatan. Visit us. Have a conference at Pristine Bay. Come to us. You will find a network of free-minded, free-thinking individuals who believe in individual rights, who believe in human rights, who believe in the values that America used to be known clearly to stand for right there. And then join the effort to make this an option for more people all around the world. Everyone should have an option of getting a clean slate, best practices government, especially if they're in a challenging environment. And, And that's our business model. Talk to you. If you're in a country that's that's challenged in Africa or in South America or anywhere else, and you want to bring to your country the kind of opportunity that the best ideas and policy can deliver, talk to your legislators there. Invite them to invite us down to partner. Have you guys had congressional delegations come visit? We want them to join us. We we, uh, we hope that among the 28 Congress people who have expressed support, we will soon have a visit. That'd be great. And actually, I'm going to visit. So, uh, <laughs> actually, for those that, uh, you know, if you haven't subscribed to our channel, subscribe to our channel, like this video. And in fact, um, if you give me at least a thousand likes to this video, I'll give you guys a special. Actually, I'm going to Roatan. I'm going to the Prospera uh, Zere, the, the free market zone, uh, because I want to see it for myself. <laughs> I want to see it for myself. I want to see this experiment in action. I want to see this entrepreneurship. Um, and, and what I will do for those, if you give me a thousand likes is I will share a video of my trip to Prospera so that we can get to see it live in action for those that aren't there yet. Uh, you can kind of see how this is actually, uh, developing in real time. 
Um, Nick, I want to thank you again. Uh, I've been wanting to have this conversation because my two worlds have, in through my adult life have been uh, dabbling in the free market, entrepreneurial economic world. That's where I cut my teeth academically. It's where uh, I started my career in terms of think tanks. And, and obviously, as you know, my day-to-day world today is in the national security space with Department of Defense, with ministries of defense all over Latin America, even uh, throughout the world. Uh, my expertise is warfare. That's what I've been studying pretty much my whole life. I served in the Marine <laughs> Corps, went to war, but I also studied warfare. But I also understand Austrian economics. And I'm going to, final question on Austrian economics in a second. But um, we, I, and, and I think when I learned about what you guys have been doing, you guys are building the bridges for those two worlds to come together because uh, you don't have uh, economic prosperity unless you have security, but you can't have true security unless you have economic prosperity. 100%. So I think you guys are actually putting that into action. And we'll end with this. Uh, so someone that's also studied Austrian economics and is familiar with it, uh, who's your favorite Austrian economist? It's Ludwig von Mises. Yeah, <laughs> you read Human Action, I imagine. Of course. Yeah. 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 So my, actually, my favorite Mises book is Omnipotent Government because I think he describes- I like socialism. He, that's actually the best- now that you said it, that's the best takedown of socialism. Yeah. Is, is but, but I got to tell you something. George Reisman is last living, I hope he's still living, yeah. student, uh, wrote a great book, Treatise on Capitalism, which is quite awesome and yeah. an extension of Mises. And you should, everybody should read it. George Reisman. And hopefully he hasn't passed. If he hasn't passed, hey, George, hi. <laughs> <laughs> no. Yeah, be sure that we'll put links to those books as well. And I was going to say, the reason I like the omnipotent government, because it, you know, we always talk about, uh, the failures of the market. Well, that's what the left likes to talk about, the failures of the market, failures of the market. Well, what about the failures of government, right? And so he would talk about how governments are inher- inherently designed to fail unless they're put in, it's in a system of checks and balances that actually minimize it, you know? Uh, so I, I, I'm a big, I don't know, is it Misesian? Is that, is that, is that a thing? I know <laughs> yeah. there's a Hayekian, but I'm a big fan of Mises. I'm also a fan of Hayek. Um, and the Austrian economic ideas, I think, uh, I, I like, I, I don't consider myself like a full born Austrian economist cause I'm not, I'm a national security scholar, but I, I think, uh, I've always been a proponent of understanding the, 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 the architecture of what is true free market capitalism and applying it to national security, and, and, which is why I think Prospera, I think that's a, a piece that you guys have potential in to actually solve national security issues, not just solve economic issues, uh, national security issues of crime and violence, of uh, drug trafficking, of well, even geopolitical issues of, you know, China basically going around the world and acquiring territories. Uh, you guys have that potential. Um, and this is why I'm very excited to kind of learn more about it. I will be in uh, Prospera soon. I hope to see you there. Uh, and for those of you that have any, any, well, any last words for, for, for you, where they can follow, we're going to put all the description in the show links, but any last words, closing comments? Become an e-residence. Easy. Go to mm-hmm. eprospera.hn. Anybody can become an e-resident. Uh, it gives you free access once you get to, to the island. And then come to the island. The island's is amazing. It, is it required to travel there? It, it's not required to travel. Okay. It's access to the zone only. Okay. Okay. Perfect. Perfect. Well, there you have, we'll have all the links in the show description. Uh, thank you again, Nick, uh, for coming on the podcast. We'll do another round after I visit so we can and uh, maybe talk to Eric or some of the CEOs that, that have you know conceived this. And you know, you're the general counsel, am I correct? I'm the general counsel. So, the lawyer, the lawyer, the lawyer, the lawyer, <laughs> the lawyer. Uh, but you need a good lawyer. I mean, anything, anything, any business that's ever been developed in the world knows that you need a good lawyer. Uh, it's been a pleasure to have this conversation again, follow our channel, subscribe to our links, and uh, we'll see you at the next podcast. Subscribe to the border wars podcast and visit our website at securefreesociety.org. See you in the next episode.